Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton's Barton Street East has been voted the worst road in Ontario. Police are investigating two more threats at Hamilton schools. The new industrial park on the Stelco lands will help transform Hamilton's north end. We're joined by Haldeman Norfolk Independent MPP-elect Bobby Ann Brady. Find out what stagflation is all about. And bicycles can help address social issues. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the winner has been announced. And really, the winner in this case is more of a loser, at least at this point. The Canadian Automobile Association has announced which roads here in this province are the absolute worst for 2022, the bottom of the barrel. And a Hamilton Street has not only made the list... It is at the top of the list. Barton Street East. You know it. You don't love it. It is number one. Voted by you, the people of Ontario, for the CAA's Worst Roads campaign. Barton East was fifth in 2019. It was third last year, and it has climbed to first place. And we know why. The crater-like potholes, the number of potholes, the cracking, the crumbling, the crunching of your car as it travels over Barton East. Ugh. I can feel my bones rattling as we speak. Not a good street. Now, the good news is, being number one on this list comes with a little bit of attention, obviously, because now the CAA is going to say, hey... City of Hamilton, hey, provincial government, uh, we need to fix this road. You will recall not too long ago that Burlington Street was on this list as well. And, uh, well, it's been patched up from time to time. It was actually voted the worst road in 2017 and 18. But Barton East, number one, and here to talk about it is Teresa DeFelice, the Assistant VP of Government and Community Relations at the CAA of South Central Ontario. Teresa, good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good morning. How are you? I'm okay. No surprise here. I mean, Barton East, as I mentioned, was fifth in 2019, third last year. It's just a terrible road, isn't it? It's a a pretty rough one. Uh, We we called it alligator cracking uh, is is sort of what the surface looks like with some very, very deep potholes. Looks like the surface of the moon, really. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but I think the moon almost, at least the caricatures of it are more consistent in terms of the the potholes. Barton East was first on the list. Eglinton Avenue West in Toronto was second. Was it a close vote? They're they're pretty up there. The ones when when you get to the top ten list, there's you know every all votes uh, come in pretty tight within one another. That those are the ten that bubble bubble up to the top. Does anyone from the CAA travel on the roads and uh, and verify their nastiness? I guess. Um, so we have done that. Education, uh, who have members throughout the province and who go out and do an analysis of the roads that are on are trending as the top 10, as well as the top five roads in 10 regions across the province that we put out a list for as well. So now that we have this list and Barton East is number one, what happens now? So, you know, we take some time. Uh, CA has a government relations team. And so our advocacy kicks in. We contact all the municipalities that uh, have the honor of being on the list. And, uh, 
And then we uh, provide some insights and info from the campaign and offer a dialogue as well as we monitor uh, the provincial and federal government around funding for infrastructure so that municipalities have some options um, to get those roads fixed in their municipalities. And there have been some success stories in the past in which you've highlighted, you know, those ominous looking roads uh, and they've been repaired. Very true. We've been very fortunate. I think the success of this campaign is twofold. It gives people a chance to come together uh, and collectively have a voice, whereas if you were just going on to your own, it can be very daunting uh, to to figure out where to, to complain to. Um, But I think what's really neat about it is that we have decision makers and municipal civil service staff who recognize and see the list as a a, a highlight of infrastructure. And sometimes we do get those success stories where they want those roads off that list. They've heard enough is enough and uh, make some changes based on what's uh, what's coming up each year. Teresa DeFelice is our guest from the CAA. We're talking about the worst roads 2022, and Barton Street East has finished number one on the list. And interesting to note that uh, while most votes came from drivers in the campaign, you also got some votes from cyclists and pedestrians as well. That's right. We asked people to, to let us know why they're they're voting for the road. And you're right, the majority will say it's it's because of the poor road surface like potholes or or poor maintenance. But we had 29% uh, take to the campaign to tell us about no or poor cycling infrastructure uh, and another 20% around poor walking infrastructure. So, you know, we do have people reaching out around the different ways they get about and uh, you know and voted in terms of those types of things we also have things like traffic congestion poor road signs and poor uh, road markings and at eight percent poor transit infrastructure so people are uh, talking about the different ways they get around and using the tool to help get their message across great stuff Teresa. appreciate the time thanks for compiling this list once again and hopefully we can get some uh, some work done on barton street east in the not too distant future thanks for joining us I agree. Thank you. As Teresa DeFelice, Assistant VP of Government and Community Relations, we're number one. It's not a good list to be on, really. But hopefully things will get repaired. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Parents and students having to make a difficult decision that uh, shouldn't even be had at the dinner table or even the household. Uh, should they go to school or are they going to feel safe sending their kids to school? Uh, and if the kids are going to be safe when they're at school. That is Hamilton Police Constable Indy Barrage on Good Morning Hamilton yesterday talking about arrests being made following a rash of threats at local schools in the city. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that as well as uh, name change. We know that Ryerson Elementary School's name is being changed. Uh, a debate last night at the school board office was on a new name that we'll get into with our next guest here, the chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, Don Danko. Don, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you doing? I'm great. Not too bad. It's a rainy morning. <laughs> yes, it is very much so. Uh, let's start, if we must, uh, with the uh, the new threats uh, that uh, have been made. We understand that two elementary schools in the city, Dr. Davy and Benetto, uh, have uncovered some threats in their school. Do you have any information on that? 
Well, of course, we're deferring to Hamilton Police Services on specifics for any of the threats as these are ongoing police investigations. I, I just have to say that every student and staff has the right to a safe school environment and threats of this nature, they're, they're not only difficult for students, staff and their families, but they're extremely serious and there are serious consequences for those involved. We're, we've seen a number of arrests for a few different schools already at this point. So um, at this point, I don't have additional information to share aside from the, the fact that we're working very closely with Hamilton Police Services. They are um, taking all of these seriously and investigating them. Um, we're seeing the outcome of some of those investigations, but we're also making sure that we're proactively communicating with school communities where these are happening so that people are aware of the threat um, that, that, or sorry, the nature of the threat that's been made. Um, but again, details, I have to defer to Hamilton Police Services. Constable Barrage called last week a hectic week for all, whether it was police, parents, students, teachers, school officials. How would you describe the last 10 days or so? I would describe it as disturbing. It is really, really disturbing to see that such tragic and horrific events that have happened uh, to our neighbors in the South have led to people, um, many of them doing what I, I believe they consider to be a prank. Um, some of these threats we, we've seen are quite serious um, and, and there was other information to suggest that that action had to be taken. I think um, really for, for students, family and staff at schools, th this is really challenging knowing that we, we just had incidents in the States um, of this nature. So honestly, I'm disturbed. I'm, I'm really upset that we would see this happening in our communities. Three teenagers have been arrested. Uh, police say more arrests are expected. What's your message to parents? For parents, it's really that we are taking this seriously. Um, as I mentioned, we're working with Hamilton Police Services. Every threat is being thoroughly investigated and action is being taken wherever appropriate. Um, if there has been any risk at a school that's been founded um, beyond, um, you know, what, what may be considered something like a prank, we have taken action. If, for example, we, we did close Westdale at an abundance of caution on Friday, just to be sure um, that everyone is safe. But uh, we are open to, to questions. We can share whatever information we have. And we are doing that uh, proactively as much as possible so that students, families and staff can feel safe and comfortable going to school. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Don Danko, chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. There was some other business to tend to last night, including the renaming of Ryerson Elementary School. Um, what was discussed last night? Well, the Board of Trustees was very excited to confirm a new name for what was previously Ryerson Elementary School. Uh, we do have to, to ratify this at board next week, but we had a unanimous vote to confirm the name Genetskara Elementary School, and that is a Mohawk term that means by the bay. So this was a name, uh, it's been a year in the works. Uh, we wanted to make sure, uh, following the, the motion of Trustee Cam Galindo, that in the spirit of truth and reconciliation, that we have an Indigenous-led process that that rename to rename Ryerson. Um, it's it's been a year to develop that, both that process and then go through consultation and to have that name rise up through through a really collaborative process. So it's exciting to finally come to the end of that journey, um, and we've learned a lot from from it. Did you get a lot of participation from parents or even students to say, "Hey, we should name it this"? 
Well, there was a number of different opportunities to participate. So in particular, we had a naming circle that did include uh, representation from members of the school community. So that would include a parent, students, um, staff, for example. But we also made sure that as part of this, we were consulting Indigenous communities. And there was actually an Indigenous elder who was part of that consultation that helped with um, the meanings of different names because there, there was a desire to, to name the school something that honored the land, the location of the school, the energy of the place, and potentially use um, a name that would be in, an Indigenous word. Um, so students also had the opportunity to, to participate in a really neat process where they rose up three names through uh, this consensus building that was done under the lead of Lisa King, who's our Indigenous education consultant. So that's students in grades six, seven, and eight at the school. They had the chance to submit three different names. And one of those, um, we did confirm that it wasn't actually uh, a Mohawk word, but it meant beautiful waters. And so the name that we're seeing um, confirmed for the school actually reflects one of the names that the students brought forward in terms of the meaning. And this name change will happen this fall? That is the plan. So we will be looking to celebrate and um, uh, bring that name back to the school community once it's ratified next week at our board meeting. Um, and we would expect to see that new name um, front and center as you walk up to to the school um, I forget the road that it's on, but, but it's uh, down in the Duran neighborhood. <laughs> Done. Uh, we will uh, thank you for your time today um, and um, wish you the best of luck on the name change going forward. And uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Thank you so much. That's Don Danko, chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. Ganetskare Elementary is going to be, if ratified by the public board, uh, will be the new name of Ryerson Public Elementary. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Exciting news in the city of Hamilton as investment firm Slate Asset Management has acquired about 800 acres of Stelco land here in Hamilton and plans to transform it into a world-class industrial park. Paul Satchelwitz is a policy and government relations advisor with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Paul, how are you? Hey, good morning, Rick. I'm uh, doing well, thank you. And of course, great news about this project that has been in the works for a little bit of time. And it's kind of incredible to think that we've come to this point. Uh, kudos to Slate Asset Management for their tenacity and their vision as well as their partners at Stelco and redeveloping these really critical land, uh, amazing access to our harbor and, you know, a really incredible visionary project. Just think about in 10 years, 15 years, driving over the Skyway Bridge, how different it is going to look seeing this 800 acres of land reutilized. How big of a deal is this? Yeah, this is incredible. And I think that, uh, you know, city staff and Slate Asset Management have done a great job of communicating what the changes are around this. You know, we're not only going to preserve a number of those critical steel uh, development jobs that take place on Stelco's existing lands, but we're going to reutilize, you know, the majority of that land for uh, modernized, uh, you know, advanced state of the art industrial manufacturing district and the creation of what's going to be we're not just talking hundreds of jobs but thousands of jobs billions of dollars in new economic activity for our community this is nothing to you know turn a nose up to this is going to be major transformation and i think also sort of indicates what the future of our industrial bayfront is going to look like the city has you know been working with 
partners such as Slate Asset Management as well as Stelco in the development of the new Bayfront Industrial Strategy, which is really another big visionary piece of understanding how we can modernize and utilize uh, our industrial Bayfront, its access to a variety of modes of transportation, which is extremely valuable from economic sense, but also, you know, remediating these lands. We are moving beyond just being a steel town. We are one of the most diversified economies in the country. And this is really a harbinger of, I think, of what's to come in terms of future opportunities, future investments, future economy uh, here in Hamilton. What will this world-class industrial park look like, and when do we get started on this? Well, yeah, in terms of what it looks like, there are some great site renderings that are available online, but what you're going to see is, is, you know, a lot of more light manufacturing, uh, major distribution centers, just the access to highways, rail, water, and even to multiple airports within driving distances is really critical, but in terms of timeline, it's obviously going to be a complex process. There's estimated to take five years alone to, you know, consolidate the Stelco operations on the site into a smaller territory. And then considerations about uh, the site remediation that might need to take place. There's going to be studies on that, as well as then going through the site plan approval process and then getting a building permit. So we're talking years, but one thing that's great is at least the work is starting. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Paul Satchelwitz, the Policy and Government Relations Advisor at uh, the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, talking about the uh, sale of about 800 acres of Stelco land in North End Hamilton to investment firm Slate Asset Management, which is going to turn this area into an industrial park. How is this going to benefit local businesses? Because that's uh, obviously what you're concerned about the most. Yeah, of course. And uh, that that's part of that larger piece about the thousands of jobs that are going to come out of this. Firstly, there's not only going to be the construction jobs that are going to be long, enduring contracts to build all this land, but then you think about the new employment that comes with the additional businesses that are going to be set up on these 800 acres of land. Think about the number of employees that are going to need to be accessing, accessing transit, that are going to need to be accessing uh, restaurants, retail services, various things that you find around, uh, you know, cl- major clusters of, em- of employment. Uh, and it's, it's really going to help support really the viability of our future LRT system even further as we intensify along that corridor. And having this type of new local employment base is huge. And an even bigger part of that, too, that I haven't mentioned yet is this is critical to balancing out the industrial residential assessment base that I know Hamilton has struggled with for a long time. I was going to ask that. Is this a, could this potentially be a new boom for the North End? I I would like to say so. And you know what? I think that the boom in the North End is probably already happening. There's a, there's a ton of, even if you go, you know, to Ottawa Street, Kenilworth Street on the weekend, there's a real change in terms of uh, the amount of people walking around, the amount of people accessing local businesses, and a lot of people who are, you know, relatively newer to Hamilton and finally after, you know, two plus years of the pandemic are able to go out and explore. And this here is just another, you know, really important story about the efforts that not only the municipality is making, but leaders in our industry, leaders across our community, you know, believing in our community and advancing it together with a vision of what the future of Hamilton is, as well as its economy. We only got about 30 seconds. How is this going to impact Stelco? So 
So, I mean, I mean, you'll probably have to speak to Stelco to get a better sense of what this means for them, but they do not plan on stopping their operations here in Hamilton anytime soon. It's more of a consolidation of their operations and more effective utilization compared to what they were doing, you know, 50, 75 years ago. So I, I can't speak on behalf of Stelco, but I know that they are committed to staying here in Hamilton, albeit under a consolidated operation. It's a great news story. Paul, thanks for sharing your insight in it and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Yes, you too. Have a great day. Thank you. That is Paul Satchelitz, Policy and Government Relations Advisor with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. You can get more details on this story online at 900CHML.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900CHML. It was one of the most amazing stories on election night. No, not the Doug Ford majority government. No, not Stephen Del Duca resigning as ND or as liberal leader. Not Andrea Horvath stepping down as NDP leader. No, no, no. This was, in my opinion, the big highlight of the night. Because after an extremely interesting race in Haldeman, Norfolk, independent candidate Bobby Ann Brady took the riding in the provincial election. And Bobby Ann Brady joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Bobby Ann, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Not too bad. You still on cloud nine? Well, I'm not sure that I've hit cloud nine yet. There's been so many interviews and so many things to do since Thursday night that I'm not sure that it's completely sunk in. Well, as you reflect on the campaign on election day, on election night, what comes to mind? Well, I think it's the hard work of my entire campaign team. Um, you know, this campaign was won. Uh, this election was won in Haldeman, Norfolk, the old-fashioned way. I had so many good people, um, you know, honest, upright people with a with a great deal of integrity who said, you know, we're going to make this happen. And, you know, as an independent, you you don't have all the tools available that you would as a, as a party candidate. And um, the good folks of my campaign went out into their respective communities and they talked to their friends, their neighbors, their relatives, and they, you know, said, this is the girl to vote for, and these are the reasons why, and they truly delivered. Now, for those who don't know the backstory, how did you become an independent MPP-elect? So I've worked for MPP Toby Barrett for the past 23 years, and it was no secret to anyone that, um, you know, Toby would have liked me to be his successor. And Toby had let the Premier's office know four years ago that this would be his last run, that after the 2018 election, um, he sat down with them and said that this was the last four years and he wouldn't be seeking re-election in 2022. Um, come January of this past year, I started going to the party asking when we might be able to have a nomination night locally because I am the Riding Association president, have been for the past 20 years. And so in January, I was told, you know, COVID is still quite uh, bad and, and you shouldn't have a nomination night. Fair enough. I went back in February. I was told the same thing. March told the same thing. And that's when I said to Toby, you need to make a phone call because something's inherently wrong here. Um, you know, we're, we're weeks away from an election call and, and there's nobody in place. So he went to the premier and had a conversation with the premier and uh, the premier said, you know, who would you appoint? And he says, well, I would appoint Bobby and Brady, my, my executive assistant of 23 years. Everybody knows her, loves her, loves the work she's done for the past 23 years it's a no-brainer. And the premier said, okay, leave it with me. And, if, you know, a while later, the premier got back in touch with Toby and said, you know, I, I won't be appointing Bobby Ann Brady. I'm, I'm appointing Ken Hewitt, mayor of Haldeman County. And um, Toby and I and local conservatives would not condone that appointment. 
um, largely because um, the mayor had, number one, run, run for the Liberals uh, several federal elections ago. Um, he had never held a membership locally. He had never been to an event. Um, he had never donated to our local association. We did not view him as a conservative. We viewed him as a liberal. And um, we couldn't condone it. Uh, he was also the mayor that the premier had um, tongue lashed on television during the pandemic when uh, the, the mayor and uh, the Norfolk County mayor decided to get their hair cut um, during lockdown. So none of these things made sense to us as to why this uh, person was being appointed. And um, local conservatives kept saying, Bobby, and this is this is terrible. You know, what do we do? And I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to challenge the premier's appointed candidate. And he ran as an independent and won on election night. Our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Bobby Ann Brady, the independent MPP-elect in Haldeman, Norfolk. So is there a possibility that you will join the PCs? Are they wooing you at all? Um, I don't think the Premier is wooing me. I haven't heard from the Premier. Um, it is a question that I was asked on the campaign trail. And I would say this, I'm not willing to join the PC um, family until the premier cleans house, uh, there's a, a real culture of disrespect. And I would think that many people in the PC party would agree with me. And that that disrespect needs to be cleaned up. And I think we're seeing it across all three main political parties is that the grassroots and, and the good people, um, you know, in the party are being taken advantage of. They're take, be, being taken for granted. Their vote their money is being taken taken for granted, and we have to stop that. Um, so, you know, would I be willing to go back home to the PC party? Absolutely. That's the reason I ran as an independent and didn't run under another, you know, party. But I won't do that until the house is clean and until the great people of Haldeman Norfolk tell me that is that it's t- time to do so. Have any of the other parties uh, contacted you to say, hey, we'd love to have an extra seat? Um, no, they they haven't. The parties have contacted me throughout the campaign. Um, different folks from different camps have been in touch with me. In fact, my campaign team had um, conservatives, liberals, and NTP members working on it. Um, I've had I've been uh, there's been some calls over the past few days from some MPPs uh, uh, who have reached out to me and have offered their encouragement and their support and their commitment to work with me at Queens Park. Bobby Ann Brady is our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, recently elected as an independent MPP-elect in Haldeman, Norfolk. What is your biggest priority heading to Queen's Park? I would say the biggest priority is is to um, remind um, everyone at Queen's Park that they have to respect the electorate. I would also say that... um, we need to fix uh, the red tape issue in Ontario, especially for our small business and for our farmers. As you know, Haldeman Norfolk is um, largely a farming community. And I go to farms and, and they say to me, Bobby, and I can't farm because government's in my way. We need to get rid of that red tape. We've got to let them farm and we've got to let small businesses do business especially in the economic climate that we're currently in. Another thing that I really want to fight for is the the fixing of home care. I went to so many homes where um, a senior couple or a vulnerable couple were not receiving the appropriate home care that they should be getting, and they're suffering because of it. And I think that the, the easy fix for that is to fix the pay inequality between those who are going out in the community and going into homes looking after vulnerable people 
uh, as opposed to those who are receiving maybe $5 more an hour in institutions? Why would you go work in the community going home to home when you could go you know, work in a hospital or a long-term care home and make another $5 an hour? We need to fix that. Absolutely. Bobby Ann, really appreciate your time. Congratulations and best of luck in the provincial legislature. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. Bobby Ann Brady, independent MPP elect in Haldeman, Norfolk. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Money, we love it and we hate it at the same time. We hate it if, you know, we're in the red and we owe the money. That's when we don't like the money anymore. Uh, we also have inflation shrinkflation, lunchflation, and of course, Pierre Poiliev's favorite, justinflation. And now, what's this? Stagflation? Brett Chang is the co-host of The Peak Daily. You can hear it weekday mornings here at 7.47 and in the afternoon at 4.27 p.m. You can also read thepeak.com for some great business news in little itty-bitty chunks that are great for those who are on the go. Brett, good morning. Thanks for joining us once again. Morning, Rick. It's great to be with you. Some economists are predicting a recession is on the way and coupled with inflation could bring about something called stagflation. Maybe we'll start there. What exactly is stagflation? Yes, yeah, so stagflation, it came from a trend that was happening in the 70s where you would see kind of record inflation, but then at the same time, unemployment would also be sky high. And so it created this stagnation in the economy where there just wasn't that economic growth that you needed. So, and when it comes to the R word, recession, is is that a reality? Is that talk real? Well, you know, it's, your guess is as good as mine. What we've seen so far is that some sectors, like the high growth ones, including tech, have taken a big hit on the public markets. But whether that actually trickles down to the rest of the economy, it remains to be seen. Central bankers are doing their best to avoid that, but a lot of economists aren't sure they have the tools available to them to safely land the economy and avoid that, that big R word. Uh, Bank of Canada interest rate increases have not done much to cap inflation and, and more hikes are on the way. How much higher can that key lending rate go? Are we, are we looking at plus 3%? Very possibly. You have to remember that pre-pandemic, we were in the 2, 2.5% range. So going back up to there seems very likely. Now, whether we go above is really tough. That one big challenge is that it's not just interest rates that are driving inflation up. We have these supply chain concerns with COVID lockdowns in China and the war in Ukraine that's also impacting freight. So if we hit stagflation at any point, uh, I don't know, in the next 12 to 24 months, let's say, what are the tools available for us to solve it or for the Bank of Canada or for the government to, to deal with it? Well, that's the really tough part. A lot of economists don't feel like there are a lot of tools at the disposal of these central bankers, primarily because the reason why, one of the reasons that we have high inflation today is because we brought interest rates down to near zero during the pandemic. And so to reduce interest rates, which would then stimulate the economy, would also increase inflation. And so you're in this weird conundrum where they're not really sure what to do. So there's a lot. We really hope that we don't get to the stagflation situation. Now, some of the Bank of Canada, I think it was their deputy governor that said, listen, that what happened in the 70s and what's happening now are two different things because our economy is still chugging along. So is that a big factor in all this? Yeah, absolutely. Unemployment is still relatively low. In fact, it's at a record low for the past few years. It's about 5.3%. And so with that, there still is 
that energy in the economy that's preventing the stagflation. But if you start to see that unemployment number tick up, then we're in real trouble. Brett Chang is the co-host of The Peak Daily. You can find them online, readthepeak.com. You can hear them on 900 CHML weekdays at 727 a.m. and 427 p.m. We're talking about stagflation. We know one of the biggest impacts on inflation, on supply chain, on gas prices is the war in Ukraine. If that is settled, and hopefully sometime soon, is that a release valve in terms of the pressure on the economy, on inflation? Yeah, well, I think anyone who is listening has noticed that gas prices are pretty expensive right now, and a big part of that is because of the war in Ukraine. We just don't have access to Russian oil like we did before, and so that's driving prices up. Now, the big question is, even if the war ended, would we then have access to Russian oil? Would the sanctions then be removed? And that's not apparently clear. However, just that stability alone would probably help the situation, but it's really hard to tell where it goes. Absolutely. That's that's the guessing game we're all playing. Brett, really appreciate your time, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Brett. Have a great rest of the day. You too. That's Brett Chang, co-host of The Peak Daily. You can find them online, readthepeak.com, and also weekdays, 727 a.m., 427 p.m., right here on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, from the rigors of the road on Barton Street to another issue when it comes to transportation, and that is bicycles. And there is an interesting article in the conversation titled, Will the Bicycle Help Us Address Pressing Social Issues? Lindsay M.C. Hayhurst is an assistant professor in the School of Kinesiology and Health Science at York University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Lindsay, good morning. How are you? Hello, Lindsay. Do we have you? Yeah. Excellent. How are you? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Can you hear me? I sure can. Excellent. Yeah. We're on the same page, and that'll make this interview go very smoothly. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Can, can bicycles help address social issues? I know you've done some research on this. What have you found? Yeah, you know, we found a range of things. Um, we're, we're a group of researchers who really became interested um, in the possibilities of the bicycle for doing more than just contributing to um, environmental sustainability uh, we've been we've been looking all over the world at the different ways that bicycles have been used, for example, to promote gender equity, women's rights, reduce poverty, foster mobility, um, improve access to health and educational opportunities. And we've had some really interesting data that's emerged, again, in a variety of contexts, um, from Uganda to Nicaragua to right here in, in Toronto. So what have you found in each place, and is it similar in each of those places you just mentioned? Yeah, you know what's interesting is just um, we've, we've really found that actually there's, there's more to just giving someone a bicycle and hoping for the best. What we found is that some of these initiatives, um, some of these organizations really deliberately use the bicycle in very structured ways, for example, um, by teaching people how to repair their own bicycles. Something as simple as that gives them an opportunity to then use the bicycle for starting a business, for delivering um, goods to folks. An example in the pandemic, an organization called the Bike Brigade started to deliver people food um, and equipment and various kind of social um, social welfare items to help them survive when they were very isolated. So we found that there is actually, um, in some ways, the bicycle has been replacing social social goods, social services 
that folks were unable to access during the pandemic. And it's, it's been a boom, as many people know, I think, you know, after, after COVID hit, uh, the bicycle really started to emerge in a number of different areas uh, and has really started to kind of explode. A lot of bike shops can't even keep up with the demand. Um, and a lot of the organizations, again, are starting to use them to address, um, you know, things, pressing inequalities that have really been exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, there's a lot of positives with uh, giving someone a bike. It certainly opens a, a lot of doors. It uh, has a great impact on the environment, or really no impact on the environment. But there are mm-hmm. some negative outcomes that you found as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I appreciate you asking about that. We found that, you know, th- there's been a lot of hype. Look, like the U.N., recently suggested that um, the bicycle was going to solve all our problems. It was the new panacea for development. But, you know, we found, for example, particularly in urban centers, um, you know, racialized cyclists really documenting ways that they've had, um, you know, they've been facing inequities in terms of access to bicycles, in terms of having little to no infrastructure in the neighborhoods where they live to actually cycle. Uh, there's really some stereotypes, for example, around who can cycle, um, who's supported in bicycling, especially, again, in places like Hamilton and Toronto. Uh, and we've, we've heard a lot of voices from folks who wish they had more um, opportunities to learn about safe cycling, um, even to purchase a bicycle that doesn't break down. And really what we're getting at here in this next version of our study as well are, are parenting cyclists, people who have young children who just don't feel safe you know, taking them out in in busy urban areas, uh, understandably, because there's just a lack of permanent um, infrastructure to really support them. There's no bike lanes, uh, and so really, as people are taking up cycling in the in this you know pan- post pandemic era, let's say, I think we need to really contemplate what needs to happen if the bicycle is going to address these social issues. We need the policies and we need the structural support to make that happen. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Lindsay M.C. Hayhurst, Assistant Professor, School of Kinesiology and Health Science at York University, contributed to a great article in The Conversation titled, Will the Bicycle Help Us Address Pressing Social Issues? So what's the next step in your research? What are you going to be looking at? Yeah, so I think we're looking now to better understand, as I mentioned, the experiences of parenting cyclists all around the world. So looking here in Toronto, more people who are wanting to use uh, cargo bikes but can't access them to transport their children, looking at the experiences of of self-identified women who, um, you know, want to try to use the bicycle to commute to school, for example, or to uh, job opportunities, but don't feel safe doing that due to the neighborhoods and where they live. So thinking about gender-based violence prevention and the uh, ways the, the bicycle might um, prevent that. And we're also looking at social entrepreneurship and, and the ways that folks are starting really interesting social enterprises uh, using the bicycle in a range of contexts. So really looking forward to sharing uh, more with you, Rick, when we're, when we're done the study. Do you have a timeline or a deadline and when you hope to be done? Yeah, yeah. So we actually just got funding from um, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. It's a five-year grant, but we're really trying to get more information out to the public through venues like The Conversation um, as the study continues so that we don't have to wait till 2026 to share our findings. So, yeah, we'll we'll be um, really sharing lots of information again through The Conversation, through our website, um, through podcasts, 
and we're actually working on a documentary film, uh, getting lots of interesting footage using some GoPros that we purchased. So getting folks to, um, to, to document their experiences, you know, visually, which we're finding really helpful for sharing those experiences with the public. It's a very interesting conversation, that is for sure. Lindsay, thanks for your time today. Best of luck with the research moving forward. Thanks so much, Rick. Take care. You too. Lindsay M.C. Hayhurst, Assistant Professor, School of Kinesiology and Health Science at York University. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.